You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and talking about Bruno. This is Season 5, Episode 2, The Encanto Family System. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hello, Carrie. Hey, Adam. How's it going? Pretty good. Uh, it is time to talk about Encanto. This movie has been out for about six months as of the release of this recording. Already transformational. (laughs) We were joking when we were planning season five that we could probably do the entire season just about Encanto, Mm -hmm. do like nine episodes on it. We settled on two and we'll see what happens, how it sneaks in other places. We already talked about it a tiny bit in our first episode of season five on I Want Songs, but we're going to talk about it a lot more today. And specifically today on the whole family system, not just Mirabelle, but how she interacts with her cousins, her aunt, her uncle, and the rest of her family, particularly Abuela. So should we share our quotations for today? Sure. The scripture quotation today is Genesis 37, 17 through 20, uh, about a very complicated family system in the Bible. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say the wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And our nerd quotation is from the song, All of You, and it's going back and forth between Mirabelle and Abuela. Home sweet home, I like the new foundation. It isn't perfect, neither are we. That's true. So when we watched Encanto for the first time, I don't know about you, Carrie, but when I saw it, I kept seeing resonances of family systems theory, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a big kind of umbrella term for several ways that therapists uh, will use your family of origin to understand your own psychology. Mm -hmm. Now, neither Carrie nor I is a psychologist, but we have been trained a little bit in family systems uh, through clinical pastoral education and, and other places. And so I'm really interested in talking through through the family Madrigal and specifically Mirabelle's relationships with other people based on some elements of family systems theory. And then we'll probably go a little further afield as well. Well, and it's a helpful way to see it. I think as someone who has learned to see families and other relationships like a church as a system, realizing that there's a organization beyond just each individual relationship and how all the relationships interact. Here we have this multi-generational family all living under one roof in the casita, and they all interact in different ways, have different quirks and expectations and habits, and obviously their magical gifts play into that. And the way that each of them interacts with one another is interesting, but more interesting is the way they interact as a whole. And then we'll see throughout the course of the film the system is at risk. The system mm-hmm. is not is not a healthy one. And it seems fine at the beginning. We have that beautiful opening song where everyone's showing off their gifts and fits in. But even early on, there's hints that all is not well. <laughs> yeah, because we don't talk about Bruno happens within 
the first minute and a half of, of the We don't talk about Bruno. Is it, yeah. Isabella is the perfect golden child, yeah. and we'll see the way all of those start to break down. Yeah, and and so you mentioned the Family Madrigal, the first song. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the big elements of family systems theory is mapping out your family field, uh, which is where you actually draw your family system and your grandparents and how they connect to your aunts and uncles and your oh, parents yeah. and so forth, right? Uh, and you draw it with circles and, and squares and lines and, and all that stuff. And so Mirabel actually does a family field in the very first <laughs> song of the family mother girl. And then you actually see their family tree in the house, right? In, in the kitchen. In the house and in the village. Oh, no, there's just pictures of the village. It's just pictures, yeah. But, uh, and they have the their kitchen. family tree. Yeah, or I guess in the dining room. Um, so we, we see that right away. We get Abuela and then her three kids and then their families. Um, and it's really the, the movie actually continues to uncover that family field as when we get finally to the end of the movie uh, at the at the, the river, um, we learn more about, or Mayor Mirabelle learns more about uh, her grandfather. Um, and so mm-hmm. we, we get an, un, an a revealing. Well, what's interesting, I think, is the sort of a lot of families have a genesis story, a kind of stories they tell about themselves, about the past that defines who they are. And very much of the Madrigal family story is that opening story that little five-year-old Mirabelle hears from her grandma. You know, in our moment of trouble, we were gifted a miracle. Abuelo Pedro falls. And in the opening scene, it's kind of sanitized. Mm-hmm. And we receive this miracle and we get these gifts and Mirabelle, you will receive a gift just as wonderful as you. Um, and we learn throughout the course of the movie that that isn't, it's not as simple as that. There's a lot of nuances to the gift and to this trauma that has impacted Abuela and her children and then her children's children that has to be uncovered, explored, poked, and a lot of things have to kind of fall apart before they can be put back together again. I like that you just said about falling apart and putting back together. Mm. Cause there's something I noticed in my most recent watching the movie specifically for the podcast. And it had to do with the vision that sent Bruno that, that made Bruno leave the one of Mirabelle oh, yeah. in the house, right. Which he, which he breaks and then, and then leaves and Mirabelle finds in the tower with all the stairs. Uh, so many stairs. Bruno, your room is the worst, <laughs> but at least you're here with me, right? Toucan. No, you flew away immediately. Uh, Thanks, Alan Tudyk. <laughs> yeah, his one contribution <laughs> to this particular Disney movie. He keeps playing birds. Um, okay, so the, anyway, the so yeah, the vision. Uh, I, I noticed something that I thought was was interesting that I didn't catch my first couple of times watching the movie. The way that they uh, that they interpret that vision is basically, we don't know which way this will go. You know, cracks either no either cracks. the cracks will be there or they won't. And it all sort of depends on you, Mirabelle. But what I really think the vision is showing is the house cracking and then being put back together. And oh, they don't progression. They, yeah, they don't recognize it as such in the moment. But that's literally what happens. That vision does come true. And it has to do with her uh, repairing relationships within her family. And, and the emblematic relationship is hers and Isabel's. Isabella's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that the vision is, is identified as one that's uh, it's, it could break or it could not, we're not sure, but what it really is, is the progression from breaking to being renewed. I understand. And I think the family particularly influenced by Abuela, as she'll say later on in the last song, holding on too tight. She is fear motivated so much. She's lost the love of her life. She's lost her home. She's found a new home, but she's raising these three children on her own. So she's very afraid of losing any of them. So when Bruno leaves, it's another loss that she experiences. 
And so seeing any dysfunction, any cracks in the perfect facade, the strong facade, you know, we are the family madrigal. Yep. Anything that threatens that is inherently rejected by Abuela and therefore the rest of the family. One of the elements of family systems theory, specifically Bowen family systems theory, uh, is the concept of emotional cutoff. Uh, and that is where uh, someone in a family steps out of line from the family's norms and is then rejected by the family, emotionally cut off by the family. Either they cut themselves off or they are cut off by other members of the family, which we see in an extreme case with Bruno. Not only does he leave, and he's leaving to protect Mirabelle, we find out later, but he leaves and then they do not talk about him. And I was really focusing this time watching on Camillo uh, because mm. he's the next oldest of that third generation above Mirabelle. He's, he can't be more mm. than a year or two older than Mirabelle. I think he's less than that, uh, but yeah. So he has basically lived his entire life wondering who Bruno is as well. And he keeps he keeps wondering why they can't ask about him. And he has this kind of child's kind of scary vision of Bruno, you know, mm -hmm. seven foot frame seven with rats upon frame. his branch, which when you're a little kid and you see your uncle, maybe he does look that big, right? Uh, and Definitely he keeps asking questions. <laughs> yeah, the side character, even at the end, oh. he, he, he's like, he's like, we don't have a house. I can't ask about not having a house, you know? Um, and huh. yeah, it's, it's interesting how this other character who's not the focus of the movie keeps having moments of of wondering about this person who has been exiled from the family i never saw that i see i see camilo as being like the comic relief in a lot of ways and so in doing that he mitigates the tension that they all experience he'll break he'll break out you know just kind of to shake them out of their their tension but also that you're right that he does he is kind of poking and asking and i wonder how much that says about him being a middle child Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's talking talk about, about sibling position. Yeah, sibling go, go position ahead. because I think it's pretty obvious, at least among the three sisters. So Julieta's yeah. children, mm -hmm. you have the the kind of stereotypical golden perfect first child, literally the, strong, the golden child. That literally, yeah, she's yeah. called that in the song. Then you have the strong one, the Luisa, who holds all the family tension and takes it upon herself to make things right. With Mirabelle being the youngest child, the lost child, the overlooked one in the system of the family. Uh, and another element of uh, family systems theory that goes along with sibling position is the concept of self-differentiation. Uh, this mm. is where uh, a person is able to be themselves within the system, independent of the other parts of the system. And in uh, in Kanto, the characters of Mirabelle and Isabella really show the two sides of self-differentiation. Mirabelle is actually a very highly self-differentiated character because she's willing to risk emotional cutoff to heal the system. She's willing to be exiled in order to help her family get beyond whatever issues that are de they're dealing with, whereas Isabella is not. She's ready to get married to someone she doesn't love simply to please the family and not rock the boat. And it's that idea of rocking the boat, which is so important in family systems theory. Disrupting the homeostasis. And that's what Alma is trying to prevent at all costs. Everything needs to be perfect. Everything needs to be smooth. Everything needs to be held together. And that's why she, I think, reacts so strongly to Mirabel. And as the family's a system, so is the church. And I at least recognize the Almas, the Abuelas in the systems that want of the church that want to keep things steady, but they might not be the most healthy. 
you know, you and I are priests, we are called to be, you know, alongside our lay leaders, guiding these churches that are systems in a way very similar to a family. And I at least have experienced backlash similar to Mirabelle when you see something is wrong, you see there's cracks, but mm-hmm. it feels like no one else is willing to look at them or, or talk about them. And in this case, you know, Bruno's afraid that his vision of Mirabelle will exile her essentially from the family. So he leaves, Mm -hmm. but then Mirabelle regardless becomes exiled from her family by being different, by pointing out Luisa's not okay. She's carrying too much. Isabella is miserable. We're all not perfect. And instead of saying, Oh, thank you for telling me Mirabelle. uh, Let's change the way the system works. Abuela essentially cuts her off and says, this is all because of you. Mirabelle becomes the scapegoat in this situation. Mm-hmm. She 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 follows the Bruno treatment of that emotional cutoff, and she becomes what we what we talk about in family systems theory is the identified patient, the one who all it is, which is basically a synonym for scapegoat in some ways, where all of the problems get put onto this one person because they're actually the one who's saying that there's a problem rather than actually being the problem necessarily. Um, And then everything gets shifted to them. And you talked about homeostasis before a a minute ago. I remember when I was learning about this, the image of standing up in a canoe was used, which I really liked Um, that the rocking of the, literally the rocking of the boat, you stand up in the canoe and all of a sudden it's shaking and you have to sit back down or else you're going to capsize. And so what the family system tries to do in a situation where the homeostasis or the equilibrium has been shaken is by any means necessary, bring it back to the status quo whether that means exiling somebody or doing something uh, drastic, uh, it will try to come back to that status quo um, and oftentimes in very harmful ways. Uh, And so what happens is this emotional interdependence where we have um, heightened anxiety infects the entire system. One person who's anxious, this now we talk about Peppa, right? Mm -hmm. Her anxieties are there for everybody to see because she starts raining. Right. Or, or blowing wind or whatever. You can't ignore Peppa. <laughs> and her husband, Felix, her, his entire job is to calm her down, is to basically say, okay, okay, let's, you know, deep breaths. And Camillo does it as well at certain points, trying to give her tea, you know, uh, keep keeping her calm. Um, and uh, so what we have is this heightened anxiety that affects everybody within the system. Mirabelle is the one who is not she's not the cause of the anxiety the anxiety is already there she's the truth teller who's saying there's anxiety in this system what are we going to do about it and the response from abuela is exile you right it's your fault i don't know why you weren't given a gift but it's no excuse to hurt our family we talked earlier about bruno and mirabel being in their own generations the those identified patients or the mm-hmm. ones that are you know, rocking, rocking the boat. Uh, Bruno has some really poignant lines when he's talking to Mirabelle. Uh, and this is after we we see hit, that he has been patching the cracks, like literally patching the cracks. So uh, yeah, as, as Hernando, uh, and then the one that makes the spackle, Jose, Jose. <laughs> who makes the spackle. <laughs> so Bruno says, my gift wasn't helping the family, but I love my family. You know, I, I just don't know how. And then we see his, that he's made his own place setting just on the other side of the wall. Cause that's, mm-hmm. that's his cutoff that the wall is where he's been cut off. 
Um, and then Mirabel says, I just wanted to make the family proud of me just once, but if I should stop, if I'm hurting my family, just tell me. And Bruno says, uh, I knew how it would look because I'm Bruno and everyone always expects the worst. That's about the vision mm-hmm. that he didn't show. Um, and so these two exiles uh, commiserating here, I think then gives Mirabel the strength to finally have that confrontation, risk getting exiled like Bruno, and then having that happen. But of course, that's what breaks everything open. And I love the metaphor of the casita showing as as the family system, essentially, that when it was made of magic, it was reliant totally on the gifts and it functions as long as the gifts are functioning happily. But as the gifts start to malfunction, as the family system starts to suffer from this generational trauma that hasn't been dealt with, it becomes fragile and kind of almost brittle. And you can try to patch up the cracks from the inside the way Bruno is. You can try to ignore them like Abuela is but eventually it's going to crack. And in the end, it is only a house that is built on solid relationships, a solid foundation of interacting with their community, of not being just the benefactors, but also being recipients of the fam- of the town's love for them, of the sisters working together, all those relationships being healed in which they're able to use their gifts as gifts and not as these burdens. We're moving towards the end of the movie. Is there anything else we wanted to talk about from the first half? Or do you want to move towards the the encounter at the river between Abuela and Mirabel? I think if I was just going to stress one theme or part of the early part of the film, it's the number of times they say the word perfect. Mm-hmm. It's obviously part of Isabella's song. It's a huge aspect. You know, who you got to be is imperfect, but I'll still be okay. She sings but everything mm-hmm. abuela it's abuela's favorite word tonight mm-hmm. must go perfect it's a great night a perfect night and then the match with mariano's a perfect match um and that idea of perfection is a way of of living of surviving of thriving in this environment but it's impossible to be perfect and that that is sort of encapsulates the the, the letting go of the perfectionism that the whole family mm-hmm. experiences together is I think what one of the ways in which you see them healing. And it's interesting how around the perfectionism angle, uh, Mirabel's father, Augustine, mm-hmm. uh, defends her around that a couple of times mm. uh, with, with Abuela. And he talks to Mirabel also about, I, I don't have a gift. You know, Felix and I, we married into this family. We, we don't have a capital G gift. And if you watch it yeah. with subtitles, it is capitalized. Um, which I do. I like to watch our movies with subtitles so I can catch all the dialogue. Um, But he also falls victim to that need for secrecy. You know, he tells her to hide the vision, Mm. you know, just, just put it away. We'll deal with this later. It's all about deflection. Mm -hmm. Even from the people who have married into the family, they are part of the system just as much as anybody else is. Uh, Even though he is at the same time trying to defend Mirabelle. Right. Well, the fact that, you know, they, now they're part of the family Madrigal, even in that opening, they become subsumed into this larger structure. And when mm-hmm. Augustine comes to a small amount of blows with Abuela, she says like, you know, you've never cared for this family. And, and um, Augustine says, you know, I'm caring right now about my daughter, my that, daughter, that right. This, this mm-hmm. particular individual, not this amorphous family system. And sometimes the, the things and the choices we make on behalf of the larger system can actually negatively impact the individuals in it. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And it's part of, I think her parents being truly supportive of their daughter, but unwilling to go up against Alma, except in moments of extreme crisis that they don't, they're not able to, they're not able to shake the system, but they're able to, they try to peace keep in their own way, very quietly with, with Mirabelle. So then all so that confrontation happens, Mirabelle and Abuela have their big uh, split, which then mm-hmm. splits the Gesita. It falls over the mountain splits when the mountain splits, we're able to revisit the location of the Pedro sacrifice. Pedro, 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 Pedro's sacrifice. Abuelo Pedro and Abuela and, and all the townspeople were fleeing from violence in Colombia. And we now have the moment where Abuela can revisit that for herself mm-hmm. and then pass it along to Mirabel, not through trauma, but through memory. And by speaking about it in an empathetic and loving way. And suddenly the memory of Pedro's sacrifice becomes not this family genesis story but it is very much abuela's memory that is being honored and mirabel gently guiding her into the river and saying i can finally see she's able to build that bridge of empathy starting way back in the film when um, she overhears alma's prayer to pedro that's enough to build a bridge to make her understand her grandmother a little bit more and hearing uh, alma's full story of the pain she had, the strength she had to have to continue to raise her children after being widowed, literally, you know, kind of revisiting the memory, seeing her put on that widow's shawl and assuming the Mm -hmm. mantle of leadership, not just in the family, but in the town, all these people who look up to her as the bringer of this miracle. And that's when Mirabelle is able to honor her grandmother as a person and raise her up and begin that amount of healing. Yeah. And you, you mentioned her line, I can finally see, and maybe this is a whole nother episode later down the line, but there's actually a lot of language around sight mm-hmm. in this movie with her and with uh, Bruno. And, and you've talked to before with me, at least about the green, the green vision, the green glasses. Yeah. And it's when, when Mirabelle can finally see, uh, she's known that there's been anxiety and, and in the system and the system's breaking down and all this, and she doesn't know how to help it. And now she can finally see what's really going on underneath all of this, uh, where that anxiety is coming from, which is Alma Abuela holding on too tight as she sings later on when she realizes what's been going on. And Mirabelle says, I can finally see. And then she recites what Abuela has just told her. You lost your home, lost everything. You suffered so much all alone. So it would never happen again. We were saved because of you. We were given a miracle because of you. We are a family because of you and nothing could ever be broken that we can't fix together. Mm. And that goes back to the vision, which is one of breaking and repairing mm-hmm. and not breaking or staying the same. It's the break and then the repair, which is what the last 10 minutes or so of the movie is about. When I first saw the movie, I thought it it ended a little too quickly. Like I thought that the reconciliation in that moment was a little too fast, mm-hmm. but after watching it a couple more times, I think I think it's okay. Uh, I think it works uh, mostly because I started paying attention to the lyrics of Dos Oreguitas a little more. Mirabel doesn't have a large G gift, but we see with Abuela and then also earlier in the story, both with her sister's songs, everyone in the family is holding on too tight. Everyone is holding on tight to this perfection and it, it therefore is fragile. And the only ones who are interested in 
either repairing the cracks or in Mirabelle's case, exploring the cracks and what they mean are the family scapegoats. But part of Mirabelle's gift is the ability to listen and connect and to draw that truth out of people. So we have you know, Louisa is so tense that her eye is twitching and, and Mirabelle's able to get her to sing her truth, um, yeah. of, you know, pressure is breaking me. And it ends with a hug with Mirabelle saying, you're carrying way too much. And then we see with Isabella, because she's able to like spark so much conflict within her perfect sister that Isabella mentions, she doesn't want to marry Mariano. She's doing it for the family. And that transformation makes her realize she doesn't have to be perfect. She can live the way she wants to. She can do what she wants. She can still make grow beautiful things that are imperfect, but they're hers. And that again, ends with a hug. I, yeah. She says at the end, you know, I, I owe it all to you. She's mm-hmm. out there. She's changing minds. And it's all because of Mirabelle's willingness to listen to something that's not easily, you know, easily summarize something that is nuanced and difficult and getting her family to speak truth rather than just standing up straight and pretending to be perfect for the sake of Alma, which Mm -hmm. makes me really kind of wish that Camilo and um, Dolores had their own songs because they also suffer a lot of heartbreak and overlookingness um, that I would be curious They only get to sing in, in We Don't Talk About Bruno. That they oh, that's right. They give We Don't Talk About Bruno basically to Peppa's family, which is kind mm-hmm. of neat. The way to give them something to to sing about. Um, right. But and, they're but they're still building up that family mythology of, yeah. you know, he's the scary specter in the background. Yeah, even though we know that Dolores knows exactly where he is and has heard him this whole time. But she's the eldest of all of these children, I think. Um, she's, younger, she's younger than Isabella. Is she younger than Isabella? Yep. Oh, really? Okay, just by a little bit. Do they ever say that actually in the film? I don't think it's canonical, but I think if you look at the pictures on the wall, oh, um, it's Isabella first, then Dolores is like a couple months younger. Okay. So Dolores is, is one of the eldest child. She's the eldest in Peppa's family. uh, And she grew up knowing Bruno. So unlike her Mm -hmm. brother, um, and she knows this, that he's been exiled. And even though she knows exactly where he is, she will not say it to anybody which is weird because she spills the beans about Mirabelle within I know seconds. I don't quite I don't quite buy that but whatever. <laughs> no, I I buy it 100% because she has learned uh, that she's not supposed to talk about Bruno. But she never she never learned that she can't, you know, spill the beans about Mirabelle. But Mirabelle and Bruno. Yeah, but I mean what is she actually she she's only she, she, she only she spilling the beans. She saw him she saw the vision from Bruno's tower. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Not, Bruno himself. We haven't met Bruno. No, that's true. Right. Uh, So I think, I think she's learned, she's grown up in the system and she knows exactly how to live within it. Mm -hmm. Even though she, even though we know that she can't keep a secret. Um, Hey, here's a wild question that I'm curious about, but I thought when I watched Encanto, maybe the third or fourth time, I have a pet theory that Antonio was conceived as like a healing of Mirabelle's failure what they see as failure he's five years old mirabelle's 15 there's a 10-year gap i have to wonder if and and his his gap between you know 10-year gap between antonio and camilo or 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 11 11, yeah i kind of wonder if they wanted another another youngest grandchild to kind of repair the damage that they saw that mirabelle had done 
We need one I, more. I we need one more chance at, at one getting one more a child gift. in this generation, right? This gen- Otherwise, yeah. we have to wait till yeah. Isabella and her five children. Also, pet theory that <laughs> Dolores lied about the five children just to freak Isabella out. What do you? Because she about? wanted Mary. Okay, now we're getting. I also think it's spicy. horrible that Bruno would have told an eleven-year-old girl or however old she was that the man of her dreams would be just out of reach. Like that's maybe yeah. where we could talk about Bruno's like. His filter, (laughs) his lack of ability to filter, and anyway, that's all my Encanto theories. (laughs) (laughs) So many theories. Uh, All right, so let's let's finish up our discussion with the end of the movie with all of you, where we have Mirabel say, "We need a new foundation. The house has fallen down." The the first verse starts, "We need a new foundation," and then at the end of the song. We bring in our quote from earlier, home sweet home. I like the new foundation. It isn't perfect. Neither are we. That's true. We have this new foundation. We have rebuilt the house together. It didn't just happen magically, as you said before, but together as a family and as a whole town, we have created this house anew. Uh, and, um, and then when they give the doorknob to Mirabelle and she, she puts it in the door, the house becomes magical again. And we see on the door there, the entire family with Mirabel at the center, uh, as opposed to the picture that was taken earlier, that Mirabel wasn't in at all. Right. That she was, she was excluded from now. She is rightfully at the center as, um, as Bruno says that, you know, you're the real gift kid, let us in. She's the one who's helped bring them to this new land. And I love I love that moment when she's walking towards the door to put the doorknob in and each, all of her family members are singing to her in their little groups. We see how bright you burn. We see how brave you've been now see yourself in turn. I love, I love that they are honoring her struggle. They see that she's been patient and steadfast and steady. She is being seen, especially as a youngest child, how healing that must be to be noticed by your family who are all so powerful in all these different ways. And the fact that she is the one who unlocks the door and lets them into this new casita where, I don't know if you noticed this in the final scene, all the doors are like unassigned They're They don't have their, their faces on them. They're just glowing. So I wonder if Mirabelle gets her own bedroom finally, or if, you know, there's not like a nursery the same way anymore. Um, and you really see in this, in that moment that Mirabelle is taking over from Abuela as kind of the family center. Um, I wonder if, if if they sang a family madrigal reprise at the end, it wouldn't be Abuela running the show. It might be Mirabelle because she is the one who has guided them through this, has kept them together, and is really being prepared to, I think, take over from Abuela as the family matriarch in the future. She will be the one who keeps them on the steady path of honoring Pedro's memory, of interacting with the casita. She's the one who's the most in tune with the casa in the, in the whole movie. She's talking Mm -hmm. to it. She can kind of understand it and speak its language and the one who will guide them into the next phase of whatever their life will look like. Yeah. And the one who will allow Luisa to take a break to, to get in the hammock. Yeah. Uh, And, and to have the gifts being used in proper ways, in ways that don't cause uh, those, that high twitching or the the feelings of, 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 of toxic perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and we see that, we see the, that toxic perfectionism falling, falling away at the very, very end of the movie, because we get another picture taken and they're all there, including Mirabelle. And then Casita 
jumbles them oh, all yeah. up. So when the picture gets taken, it's all kind of out of focus. Unlike mm-hmm. the picture earlier in Antonio's room, which was all, which was perfect, except that Mirabelle's not in it. Perfect uh, so practice poses. Yeah, there they are. And now at the end, we're all jumbled together and it's okay. And it goes back to the, my favorite line in Isabella's song is, um, what would I do if I didn't need, if, what would I do if it didn't need to be perfect? It just needed to be. Mm-hmm. I really love that line. She she needs to create. She has this com- compulsion to create. And up till now, she's only ever created roses because that's what she thought everybody wanted to see. And now she's making all kinds of plants, <laughs> just everything, cacti and, and carnivorous plants yep. and all kinds of strangling stuff. Strangling figs. Yeah. And, and that's it, this, again, that's that microcosm of the whole movie of the joy, finding the joy in the gift. Mm. as opposed to um, not, not the responsibility because responsibility is not a bad thing, but uh, that, that again, that toxic perfectionism, we're, we're mm-hmm. shedding that throughout this film, finding that joy. And that's what in the end brings them all back together uh, as the family. This time on the podcast, we are reading pages 55 through 104 of The Long Way to a Small, Angry Planet. Here's a quick recap. After a brief conversation with Mechtech Kizzy about her eclectic taste in music, Comtech Jenks heads over to the AI chamber to talk to Lovey. Now, there may be tons of other Lovelaces in the galaxy, but only one Lovey, whose unique personality was shaped by the experiences she's had aboard the Wayfarer. Kind of like organic people, come to think of it. The two dream about what life might be like if Lovey could leave her core and have a body. The legal implications aside, there are moral questions on Jenks' side and personal questions for Lovey. What would her body look like? Would she get bored having only one set of eyes? The two wonder and share in the only kind of companionship they've had in the time they've known each other. The next day, as the crew prepares for the tunneling project they're scheduled for, Rosemary gets an impromptu lesson on interspatial physics by Kizzy, who tries to explain what it means to tunnel to connect two very far away places the way that they do. Basically, it's dangerous, and it would be impossible without the presence of Ohan, the navigator, a creature called a cyanot pair. Cyanet pairs are creatures with a virus called the Whisperer, which is sacred to their people and allows them to navigate the sublayer in a way impossible to other sapiens and even AIs. During the punch, Rosemary watches Ohan calmly compute directions and distances, unfazed by the mind-bending experience. After a successful punch, the crew earns some much-deserved downtime. Sissix and Ashby idly play chess while the Tex and Rosemary sleep off their considerable hangovers before Ashby leaves to check the feeds. The other crew members know that he is always looking for news about Pei, his Aloan lover, whose work puts her in considerable danger. Dr. Chef muses to Sissix how humans are similar to his own people, often at war with one another, with only blind luck on the part of humans setting them apart. That's when the news hits that the GC has accepted into their ranks one tribe of the brutal, unpredictable Terrari people, whose territory close to the galactic core gives them access to huge amounts of natural resources. Ashby sees this as the opportunity he's been waiting for, and his letter of intent becomes accepted by the transportation board, who offer him and the crew a huge amount of money, plus expenses, to long haul their way to the core and punch their way back out. The reward is great, but so are the risks. 
in the chapter technical details that begins our book club for this episode, we have Jenks musing about AI, artificial intelligence, and I think it's really interesting. I'm just going to read the whole quote and then we can talk about it. Uh, it says, uh, her, her lovey, Lovelace, the AI who is female uh, in this um, version, uh, her personality had been shaped by every experience she and the crew had together, every place they'd been, every conversation they'd shared. And honestly, Jenks thought, couldn't the same be said for organic people? Weren't they all born running the basic human starter platform, which was shaped and changed as they went along? In Jenks's eyes, the only real difference in cognitive development between humans and AIs was that of speed. Hmm. I think that's really fascinating. The the idea there's a nature versus nurture idea here. Uh, mm -hmm. I love that. I like the phrase um, the basic humor, the basic human starter platform. And yeah, that's what infants are. Yeah, yeah, babies are <laughs> the the BHSP. Um, and I just think about we 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 haven't gotten an AI yet, we, and hopefully we really never will because then Skynet will happen and humans mm -hmm. will be wiped out. Mm -hmm. We'll all be put. I've in the seen Matrix. Terminator. I've seen Terminator. I've seen The Matrix. <laughs> this is bad news. Um, but then later on, uh, they talk about in the same chapter, uh, they talk about the um, organic bias. Which is, mm. I got another fascinating phrase. The one of the reasons I love Becky Chambers' books is because she takes real world uh, ideas like bias mm -hmm. and uh, transports it into this sci fi setting so we can look at it from a completely different angle. Organic bias. What the heck is that? Well, it's a lot like any other bias that you might have based on your own identity. And these people called the Friends of Digital Sapiens have this organic bias because they think that all AIs want a body. Mm -hmm. And we know that's not true. Lovey says she does, but <clears throat> what about any of the other AIs? We learned about mammalian bias in the first chunk of chapters as Rosemary encounters Sissix, who is a reptile, cold-blooded, literally, mm -hmm. you know, she gets cold easily and needs warmth in order to function. And yet our mammalian bias is that cold-blooded means distant and cold-hearted. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll see this more about how mammals versus reptiles approach parenting and relationships. And now we're learning about organic bias, that having this, the thought of, of an organic creature, someone who has a body, that having a body is inherently better than not. And what's interesting about the discussion between Jenks and Lovey is the reason she wants a body and that they outweigh the potential drawbacks, which is like, you know, do I want to be trapped in one set of eyes? She's able to be everywhere all at once, have direct access to the linkings, which is their version of the internet, I guess. Yeah. And, but because of the fact that she has fallen in love with Jenks and she's learned so much from the crew, she wants a chance to explore off the ship, to see the ground from the, sorry, to see the sky from the ground, to sit down and eat dinner with her crewmates and to be with Jenks in all the ways that are possible for people who do have bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly enough, the AIs in the next chapter, when they're talking about the, about punching and doing the blind punch and needing the cyanate pair to do that, mm. uh, Rosemary asks about, well, why can't a computer just do it? And why can't an AI do it? And they say, well, AIs are only as smart as their programming. And because none of the species that are not cyanate pairs know how to do this, this physics, we can't program our AIs to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, th there's no way for the AI to learn past where we have 
where we can teach them. And the Sinat Paris, that's that's their technology and it's actually their religion that they right. that they can't talk about or they, they won't talk about it. Um, and I thought really it, it, that reminded me the idea that we can't program AIs with informations that humans don't understand. That reminded me so much of Rene Descartes' uh, proof for God that I just really wanted to mention it. Um, Please do, because yes. I'm not familiar with that off the top of my head. Okay, so Rene Descartes, Renaissance, not Renaissance, blah. Rene Descartes, uh, Enlightenment thinker, French thinker. He's the guy that said, I think therefore I am. Yep, uh, yep. He has a proof for God, which, uh, you know, uh, aside, I don't need a proof for God. That's what faith's for. But it's an interesting thought experiment. His idea basically is we, and this actually goes with our encounter discussion, we can conceive of a perfect being. We are imperfect ourselves, and yet we can conceive of perfection. Mm -hmm. If we can conceive of perfection, even though we can never attain it, that means that something that is perfect must have placed within us the concept oh. of perfection because we would never be able to conceive of it ourselves being imperfect. And that made me think of uh, kind of God as, the, you know, we are, we're the AI that God is programming <laughs> to, to, to conceive of God uh, and not really being able to because we're not God. And yet we can still have that inkling of what a, a perfect being might be or a perfect relationship might might consist of uh and that's how the ai's that that's how we're the ai technology will never get um as far as it could because it's uh, the way it's being programmed well i i love in this in the chapter blind punch watching ohan calculating the distances and just so calmly they're, they're so common in the moment when they are doing their thing rosemary notices that they only have up on their sketch pad, like, or on their, on their scrib, a simple sketch pad. Yeah, it's it's, it's Microsoft paint. Is what, is yeah. What I think they, it is. They, they are calculating all of these distances, all these complex calculations, just because of this relationship with the whisper. And it's a nice intro to Ohan, although we will see them much more later in the book and mm -hmm. explore all the implications of having this symbiotic relationship with the virus. Um, but in the meantime, opening up, mm -hmm the question about sign at pairs. And I got to admit, I have to get used to using they as a plural pronoun and not as a, just a singular pronoun mm -hmm. because Ohan is Ohan are plural two, you know, two creatures in one. Mm -hmm. um, and so they are not an individual. They are Ohan, the cyanat plus the whisper, which makes them a pair. And I'll probably get their, their pronouns wrong at some point. So apologies sure. to Ohan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's interesting that they uh, that faster than light travel has been banned because it's basically oh, yeah. time travel. It's time travel. Uh, <laughs> I yeah, like it's that, such a big yeah. Sorry, big part of other sci-fi books. Like I was rereading, I was trying to trying to and successfully finish the Ender's Game series finally because a new book came out, and so much of that is based on faster than light travel. Basically, skipping like a like a stone skipping over the surface of a pond is how they sort of interact with time, and in one or two sentences, Becky Chambers is like, we're not doing that in this universe. Yeah. You know, yep. to be to be traveling faster than light means to be time traveling to set out on a journey, knowing that everyone you know and love back where you came from is gone. Yep. And then she's able to do that because of this ability of these ships to tunnel, to poke yep. holes through the space, to make tesseracts, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. What Star Trek calls subspace. 
I think they call it oh, sub, sub, yeah, okay. I think I think it's a similar concept. Uh, although to warp fair, drive, the whole thing. you know, they yeah. make up something called warp drive. Um, the whole thing confused me because I am not great at regular physics, let alone made up fantasy physics. Yeah. So it has a veneer of 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 uh, scientific plausibility to it, um, which yeah. is all which is all I need for sci-fi. It's good. What I love about this and. Um, you know, I guess they, she hints at like, she, she can't explain tech that is beyond human understanding because like a AI cannot exceed the programmers that are programming it. You know, Becky Chambers is as far as I'm aware, a human. Mm -hmm. And so she is limited in fact, by the abilities of our brains, our squishy human brains. So in the last chapter we read for today, the job uh, species uh, how of the differences between the species and how none of the non-human crew celebrates their birthdays. Mm. Seems like only humans celebrate birthdays, which is kind of fun. Kizzy um, insists on celebrating human birth, celebrating birthdays. And I, what I love about this chapter is we have the first of several conversations between the non-human species sapiens on the, on the ship about humans and the differences mm -hmm. between them and others. So after Ashby and Sissix play a disastrous game of chess, Dr. Chef sits down and they kind of muse about what humans' games say about them as a species, about us. I am a human. <laughs> really? Yes. Backgammon, I imagine all these games are based on conquest, as are a lot of the rum games that Dr. Chef probably grew up playing. All like the enduring classics, they say, like, you yeah. know, chess and go and backgammon and so forth. Um, and then um, that leads into discussion of the war around the Teremi and mm -hmm. how they're basically just going around, a, you know, a star or a, fighting each other. Then that's all they do. Right. Right. And and Dr. Chef, whose species is going to ex become extinct within the next generation. Um, says uh, that no good can come from a species at war with itself, never has, never will. And his species is the living, soon-to-be-dying proof of that. Mm -hmm. And we'll learn more about his species when we get his full backstory. But in the meantime, it's sort of hinted at that humans are a... The Grum are what humans could have been. If the Aliwans hadn't found the fleet wandering out in space, humans would have been destroyed too, either in the fleet would have broken down and we would have died or back on Mars and in the solar Republic at war with ourselves. And it's only due to pure blind luck that they stumbled upon a GC member species who took pity on them and saw that they, you know, and again, this will get discussed later when we revisit the process of becoming members of GC. But in the meantime, we, we learned that other species think that humans are kind of, kind of a pet project and also quite immature compared to, the other species. Again, one of the reasons we love this book is how it, it decenters humanity from uh, the, the main people, main creatures in the universe. Uh, even though they're the main characters of this book, uh, we know that they are not as a species, the main movers and shakers within the galaxy. And uh, as a thought experiment, that helps me, you know, as a cisgendered white, straight male to think about my own life and to say, okay, the socialization has told me that I should be centered. And that's a lie. 
let's let's expand this center so that it's it's much wider than just one type of person uh and see us all coming together into that same into that group that could be within the center and not on the margins and books like this help us to break free from those things from those biases really uh that keep us from seeing ourselves in any other ways than what we've always told ourselves about who we are right it's a nice it's a it's a mirror in some ways and also good to get out of your own head i have one small funny thing i noticed in this chat in these chapters so part of what i loved in listening to the audiobook version on hoopla available from your local public library is i, I kind of skipped over a lot of the inter chapter text, all the news feeds, all the, the historical articles. But when you listen to it, you can't skip over it. So you learn about, you have to hear, you know, feed source, the threat, the official news source of the exit and fleet public slash clip. She reads it all. So there's a news bulletin um, in between these chapters and they're talking about the four-year anniversary of a horrible explosion on one of the fleet ships, the Oxamaca, which we will learn about in another future book. Um, but they have this kind of wonderfully cutting line from the fleet admiral. Um, the the Martian government has put on like a festival to, you know, dedicating memorial to the people who were lost aboard the Exodus fleet. So they're not connected except by being humans anymore. And the admiral says, our two societies no longer turn a blind eye to the tragedies that befall the other. This is a testament of how far we have come in our efforts to close the gap between us. It's so kind and diplomatic and also very cutting that she's basically like you all left us for dead floating through space and yes thank you for building a beautiful memorial on mars for our people who died because our ships are falling apart thank you isn't that so nice thanks for finally trying to like reach out and repair things um i find that martian or the solon exodus relationship to be really fascinating and so in re-listening to this book hearing that diplomatic but also cutting remark from from the fleet was fascinating and that's the fleet that ashby the captain uh is from and Not near, the meat eaters back on mars yeah, which which is where rosemary's from so it'd be interesting to see how their relationship develops over the course of the rest of the book what are we reading next time yeah. carrie Next time on the podcast, we'll be reading the chapter Port Coriel, pages 105 to 147. So happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter at nerdychristians, where I occasionally tweet bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on his website, adamthomas.net. Planar Steel, sequel to last year's Vampire Mist, will be out soon, where you too can explore the wonders of monogamy. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. When it's not always clear skies and you've lost your way, when you hear everything but no one notices you and when you're not fine and waiting on a miracle know that the glowing constellation of your relationships is a gift from god and can reflect the love god has for you and for everyone shake the crushing weight of expectations remember that who you gotta be is imperfect and you'll still be okay you don't need to hold on too tight the miracle is you 
all of you. Amen. <laughs>